All right, hi everybody, let's get started. Um, hard to believe, but it's our last class of new material, so we'll start with the review next week. I, um, I'm not quite done with the exam, I'm close. I will finish it up this afternoon, I expect. And then I'll send around the practice section to have a look at. My thinking next week is what we'll do is I'll go through a high-level review of the course on Wednesday and into Friday. And then the second part of Friday, we'll go through the practice exam I send around. So you'll have the week to see if you can have a chance to kind of work through it. And um, I did want to sort of mention broadly how I go about grading these exams. Uh, it's very hard, frankly, to grade these exams. Um, what I do is I make a huge spreadsheet with all the issues that, uh, that I see or that other people see. Sometimes there's issues that are um, realistically raised by the fact pattern that I didn't even intend to have in there, but that's absolutely fine. So I read through everybody's exam, figure out all the issues that either I put in there or that I saw. Um, I do look for how many of the issues you've spotted. So that's sort of a third of the exam is you want to just identify the issues as much as you possibly can. Um, the next part of the grading is I look for um, outlining the analytical frameworks. So I, I, about a third of the, ex of the mark comes from you showing me you understand the Babelov approach to review of the reasonableness of a decision. You understand the Baker framework for assessing the degree of procedural fairness. These sorts of issues. And then about a third of the exam is on depth and nuance of the analysis. So it's sort of issue spotting, setting out the frameworks, and then showing me that you understand it at you know, a depth that is obviously um, you know, realistic for, for law students, but um, inevitably amazed at the depth of knowledge that people um, are able to show in these exams. And so uh, if you, you know, want to talk about your exam afterwards, um, you know, that's sort of the, that's the framing that I, I would be bringing to the analysis. Um, the spreadsheet gets crazy. It's, it gets gigantic. But, um, but anyways, I think it's fair to kind of let you know broadly the approach I take to, to grading. So you, you'll want to make sure you're spotting the issues. You don't want to miss out on that. Um, but then I do, you know, care more about the analysis and the depth of the analysis than just a rote, that person found 15 issues, that person found 13, so that, you know, that's not necessarily how it's going to work. Any questions about that? All right, well, that might be more clear, too, after next week when we have a chance to sort of go through a bit of practice. Um, so what I want to do today with our last class is sort of twofold. I want to talk about accessibility and administrative law building upon the reading from this, uh, for this last class. And then I want to just talk through practically the procedure that you would follow in assessing an administrative law case and ultimately getting it adjudicated. Now I'm talking here about a judicial review. So I want to give you a sense as to the court procedure, which is strange. I mean, it's, it's different than what you do in an action. 
and um, you know, frankly, a lot of lawyers aren't overly familiar with it. Um, so we'll we'll go through it a bit towards the end of the class. So the readings this week, um, yeah, I thought brought up some very interesting points about sort of institutional design and how the that can resonate within a more or less accessible tribunal. And I think these are um, you know, key considerations to keep in your mind when you think about administrative law and you think about where it has its failings and where it has its opportunities to be better. And I want to talk a bit about these various concerns and also note that there really isn't an easy answer for maximal accessibility. It tends to be a balance uh, between providing more services, providing more adjudicators, providing better translation, all these certain, all these things are draws on resources and you want to be able to have as balanced an approach as possible in order to provide the best services to the people who ultimately depend on the administrative tribunals. And of course we've talked about this throughout, but a major um, impetus behind this movement to have specialized tribunals is accessibility. Uh, expertise is of course another reason, but to make the tribunals more available, to make justice more available, is often seen as one of the main reasons now to move towards this tribunal framework. And indeed, um, the book has the quote, and I think it was Chief Justice McLaughlin who said something on the lines of, look, your average person's probably not gonna run into a court adjudication process in their lifetime but will be affected by administrative decision makers one way or the other, even if they don't realize that they have been. Um, like for example, uh, my life is in shambles right now because we're doing a renovation. And you know, just getting a building permit, well that's an administrative process. That's a, something you're applying for. And ultimately if you're unhappy with a building permit decision, what can you do? There's judicial review available. It's really getting crazy right now. They're like sanding the floors on the main floor. So the kids, me, the dog, the wife, my wife were all huddled into like two rooms in the basement. And like last night I was trying to get prepared for class in like this little corner of the kitchen. It's just, it's getting tough. Um, but anyway, that's my, that's my issue. So you have this idea where you want increased accessibility, but what does that mean? How do you accomplish that? Um, there are tribunals, of course, that are aimed at a sophisticated, um, regulating sort of sophisticated entities. You know, you think about your law society and who is subject to regulation by the law society? Well, only lawyers. Or you think about the Competition Bureau, for example, who, whose job is to analyze a major merger between two companies, well, that's not you know, something that you need to worry about the layperson um, you know, trying to merge two giant companies with no legal assistance. But you know, even with something like the Law Society, you wanna think, who does it serve? Well, it regulates lawyers, but it ultimately serves the public, right? In the sense that if, you're, if, if someone's unhappy with my services as a lawyer, 
the law society tribunal process enables them to bring that concern forward, hopefully get it dealt with, without them ever having to go to court to try to sue me to prove you know, something was wrong in the provision of my legal services. And um, you, know, you, you want to think about that in the sense of how many different people are interested in a tribunal proceeding and it may not just be the people actually subject to a tribunal order, but it may be people who have a broader interest in the practical outcomes. And even something like the Competition Bureau, of course, is ultimately aimed at protecting everybody with you know, fair competition and to avoid monopolies and that type of a thing. And so people, you're out, you could bring a complaint to the Competition Bureau. They would take it over. You wouldn't have to go through that process. So in this way, the administrative tribunal you know, allows somebody to have a way to get to justice without even having to take on the burden of bringing the case forward themselves. Same with the Law Society, of course. So you, know, you want to think about access to administrative justice as being um, an overarching goal that animates and explains why we're even you know, seeing this broad administrative state. And if that's such an important goal, you know, you would think that there would have to be robust consideration of how effective tribunals are at making their services accessible. The reality is there's a lot of guesswork and there's a lot of failure to follow up with empirical research that would actually determine how efficient, how quick, how accessible these tribunals are. It's a lot of, well, we feel like this is the right way to spend our resources, so we do that in the name of accessibility without often sort of robust accountability. So that's one thing that I want to sort of implore upon you if you do go forward in academic study of administrative law, is that empirical work on administrative law is sort of sorely needed and we talked about it more in the substance of, you know, does, for example, a move from a statutory appeal uh, being treated like an admin law judicial review to being treated like a ordinary appeal in terms of the deference, you know, will that change the, uh, the rate at which the judges intervene? That type of a thing is great for empirical analysis, but also this type of an issue. What are the mechanisms that make justice through admin tribunals the most accessible to the most people. It's ripe for more empirical analysis. I just wanted to throw that out there as something you might want to consider uh, if you move forward academically in this, um, in this area. Um, so what I like about the book is it sort of just goes through a whole bunch of different topics that relate to the accessibility to tribunals. And I particularly like that it starts with standing because this is an issue that we haven't really touched on, but of course is so foundational. I frankly could have started the entire course with it, but I'm glad we don't skip over it entirely. Standing, of course, is the right to have something be heard by a tribunal. And you probably look at standing rules. Where would you look at that? If you do look at like downtown east side sex workers and standing in constitutional law, maybe, yeah. Some people, yes, maybe some people, no. It's, it's sort of such an important issue, but it doesn't always fit in easily into any particular course. But so the standing rules for administrative law 
perhaps unsurprisingly, are variable, and they vary depending on the statute. So who has the right to start an administrative process to get something going at a tribunal? Well, you have to look at the enabling legislation, of course. There are different models. There are some models where there's an initial sort of screening of complaints, that's the law society model. Anybody can bring a complaint, it goes through an initial screening, and if the law society thinks that there's merit to the complaint, something worth investigating, they say, okay, you know, thank you, Mrs. Jones, we're done with you, we're gonna take it from here. There are other models where it's on the individual, of course, to pursue the case, you know, landlord-tenancy disputes. It's not as if the residential tenancy branch simply says, looks like your landlord did you wrong. Okay, you know, we're done here, thank you very much. There it's more like a court process where you've got two sides, a landlord and a tenant, arguing against each other. And so, you know, you want to look at the statute to see who may bring an administrative proceeding. Um, oftentimes, it's, it's things like interested persons might be the language that you see, people affected by maybe the language that you see, but really the different permutations of standing are about as broad as the different permutations of tribunals. And you need to, um, of course, carefully consider whether the person who is asking you to bring something forward to a tribunal is A, allowed to, and B, whether they're the best person to. So if someone has a complaint that's more broad and systemic, you may think, well, listen, you know, you, you are tangentially affected. I think it could probably get you standing, but you're not the person who's gonna present the most sympathetic case to the, about you know, this misconduct by this entity, this government entity that you want to see change, so maybe we need to uh, look for someone else. There's, there's complicated questions that arise within the standing determinations but in order to think through those complicated questions to arrive at the best strategy, you have to, of course, go to the statute and um, you know, assess whether or not, or assess who is in fact entitled to bring something forward. Um, so you think about standing to bring something to a tribunal at all, um, but you also want to think about standing to participate at the tribunal. Those aren't necessarily the same thing. So, for example, their National Energy Board hearing that we looked at for uh, last class, you know, who can start the National Energy Board pipeline regulation process? It's only a proponent seeking to build a pipeline. But who has standing to participate in that process? Well, as we saw in uh, the TMPX expansion, it was hundreds of affected groups or individuals. So when you think about standing, you want to think not just about standing to initiate a process, but also standing to participate in a process. And now I want to sort of segue into this push-pull dynamic where there isn't really an easy answer for accessibility on the question of standing as to how much to broaden standing. Because on an intuitive level, you feel like 
I want this tribunal to be accessible, therefore I should give more people standing to access it. And I want to increase accessibility, shouldn't I make it easier on a fundamental level to access this tribunal, either to bring something forward to the tribunal or to participate in the hearing. But it's not that simple, right? And I think the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, process really shows that. Because what happened when you had hundreds of people be given standing to intervene? Well, it feels like there was a watering down of everybody's actual participatory rights. Nobody was allowed cross-examination. Nobody was allowed to give a lengthy, detailed submission. The oral submissions were 40 minutes long for every person, for Tsleil-Waututh, for Squamish, you know, as much as a individual scientist who had an idea about the pipeline. So it can be that when you broaden participatory rights, when you don't have infinite time and you don't have infinite resources, which is of course always the case, you may get a shallower and broader participation when you may have more effective regulation with the narrow and deeper participation by a few effective people. It's a balance, right? The same is true of the rights to even initiate a proceeding. Tribunals, and we'll get to this again in a few minutes, tribunals generally don't award costs to the successful party. So if you go to court and you lose you get potentially an order of costs against you, and you have to pay, you know, usually it's like 20 to 30% of the other side's legal fees. It can be quite a bit of money. That very rarely is the case with tribunals. So there's very little disincentive to people invoking the tribunal's process regularly. And if you practice in the area, you'll see a few names that come up over and over again, from tribunal to tribunal to tribunal, often vexing the same person over and over and over again. You may see somebody bring a residential tenancy proceeding, then a human rights proceeding, you know, then try a whole different angle to, if they're really frustrated with somebody else, and never face any real cost consequence apart from the filing fee to do so. Of course, doing so undermines the broader project of, of justice. Uh, it's not fair to somebody to be sort of vexed by, uh, by somebody who's abused in the courts or the tribunal process in that way. Yeah? Could you not bring that to um, a regular court on a harassment charge? You, there's, you can seek a vexatious litigant order um, that would sort of say you cannot file anything else at any tribunal without leave, and that sort of thing does eventually happen. It is such a hard thing to establish, though, um, because 
For one, it really goes against the access to justice in the court's principle to do so. For two, quite often these people who are so vexatious really did have something bad happen to them. Uh, there's some little glimmer of truth in their complaint, but then they, they become fixated on it, obsessive over it. Um, you know, it it's remarkable. I, don't, I feel bad like saying the names, but you'll, you'll find them eventually, and you'll, you can have a, a look at the number of times some of these names come up. And you'll, you'll see, you know, there's, there's a real, um, there may be something that you can intuitively understand made them upset. And then you could almost always also see there's probably some um, sort of mental health issues that are at issue too. And these people tend to be rather marginalized. And so to say to a marginalized person with a mental health issue who's got a nub of real dispute, you know, you're barred from ever filing another tribunal hearing, it's, it's a tough thing to get to. And the courts are very reluctant to do so. And yet on the other side, you can only imagine the pain that some of these people have gone through who you know, just happen to come in contact with a, a, an individual, maybe they, lent, they, they, they rented an apartment to them and uh, evicted them for some reason and then have been in hearings for years after that. So it, it's a very difficult uh, balance and the sort of the first line of defense uh, as to whether or not or, or the, how far that sort of a harassment ability is going to go, you know, is this standing question. So if you open up standing too much, anybody can bring anything forward in any tribunal, um, anybody can give a shot, you know, basically, that, that can lead to abusive outcomes. So again, you know, accessibility isn't an easy question usually. There's always a give and take and a balance even on something like standing that intuitively seems like, you know, broader would be better for accessibility. So you want to, if you're designing your tribunal, you know, the goal is to have um, the people with the types of disputes that you envision, um, you know, your tribunal resolving, all being able to bring the matters to your tribunal, but then only those types of people being able to bring it. It's sort of drawing a, a perfect circle around the nature of the disputes you want to, to have adjudicated. And it's a tricky exercise that you're, you're frankly not going to get perfect. Um, so you think about standing in the sense of who can start a proceeding, who can participate in a proceeding, but then you also need to think about it in the sense of who can judicially review? Who can bring in a, a statutory appeal or a judicial review of a tribunal outcome? And you sometimes see um, statutory rules specifically prescribing certain types of people are allowed to bring court pr proceedings challenging an administrative decision. Um, the Patent Act, the Copyright Act, both allow interested parties, I think is the name, or interested persons, I'm sorry, to commence court proceedings to review decisions of the Patent Board or the Copyright Board. 
but generally you're under the common law. So look in your statute to see if it, it dictates who's allowed to bring a uh, judicial review process or statutory appeal. But if there's nothing in there, it's the common law rules you're going to apply. And hopefully this sounds somewhat familiar to you, but there's in essence two branches of standing that you could potentially seek. There's public interest standing and private interest standing. You heard those sound familiar? Yeah, okay. So private interest standing is standing as of right. That's the idea that you have been directly affected by a decision and you therefore have the right to bring it a uh, you know, court proceeding in relation to that decision. And at common law, the, the language that's used for private interest standing is that you need to be an aggrieved person, an affected person, or someone who is exceptionally prejudiced by the impugned administrative action. Obviously, affected person is the broadest of those. That's generally what you, you know, try to fit your case into. Um, there may be a circumstance where you could somehow say, maybe I'm not directly affected by this outcome, but I somehow I'm exceptionally prejudiced. I, it gets hard to envision how that could happen, but you know, in your toolbox of thinking about the ways to frame standing, those are the three terms that show up. And you want to be able to consider whether any of those fit your case. If you can show that, if the court accepts, no, you're, you're an affected person, you're exceptionally prejudiced, you're aggrieved, any of those three, then you have the right to bring the judicial review process. But if the court says, look, you just, you're, you, you're not really especially affected by this in any way, um, they'll deny you standing on a private interest basis. And then you have to argue for this public interest standing, which is a discretionary ability for the court to give somebody the power to bring a matter before it, despite them not having private interest standing. So you, know, you run into this not infrequently in administrative law contexts. Um, because, of course, administrative law is concerned with government decision-making, executive decision-making, and that's a matter that a lot of people um, find interesting, get very worked up about, have a political view towards you know, what the better approach would be. Um, you know, I ran a standing argument once, um, unsuccessfully, Think, or I think they just did decide the standing because they dismissed the judicial review in any event without having to adjudicate the standing. But it was an interesting case where um, Stephen Harper hated the Senate. Um, I mean, there's a lot of political parties think the Senate, the federal Senate, is sort of a waste of money and resources, um, undemocratic. You know, there's a whole lot of good arguments. I think both the NDP and the conservatives are against the Senate fundamental level, so it kind of cuts across ideological spectrums. And so, if you remember, you probably read the Senate reference. Did you read that one in Constitutional Law? No, okay, well, that's fine. But the Senate reference was interesting. Um, and he asked the Supreme Court, hey, can I just abolish the Senate? And they said, you know, in essence, no, you need to do the constitutional amendment to do so. And he said, all right, 
well, how about this? I'm just not going to appoint any more senators. And if I stay prime minister forever, it'll just disappear because there'll be no <laughs> senators left. And so, um, you know, I had a case where a lawyer, really nice guy, um, we actually since became friends, ironic way to meet somebody and become friends, because as you'll see, I had to call him a mere busybody to his face <laughs> in a few seconds. But the, um, anyways, he, nice guy, but he, um, he read about this in the paper. He said, in essence, you know, I'm offended as a Canadian that I won't have representation in accordance with the model that was set out in the Constitution. I think I have a right to have a Senate, in essence. So he sought judicial review of the decision to not appoint senators. And, you know, is he directly affected in any sort of special way or exceptionally prejudiced or anything like that to give him private interest standing? And the answer is pretty clearly no. He's no different than anybody else. We all have basically the same. He's not like a hopeful Senate candidate or something like that. So he had to argue instead that he had this public interest standing. Um, he had to argue that the matter was, so there's a three-step test set out in this downtown Eastside sex workers case. Um, where he had to argue that the matter was, that there was a serious and justiciable matter, that he was genuinely interested in the matter, and that the proceeding is a reasonable and effective way of bringing the case to court. And, you know, never give an interview to a lawyer magazine, because that's, that's what he did. And he said, oh yeah, I just kind of read about it in the paper one day. and. Uh, I filed a judiciary application the next day because I was annoyed. So, you know, I'm able to cross-examine him and say, well, you didn't actually have a long-standing interest in this, did you? you you're not a, you know, you don't have a history of, of efforts to preserve the Senate or involvement in democratic structures really at all. And you no, know, you just sort of on a whim brought this forward, isn't that what you said in the paper? Um, so he was able to agree, he had to agree eventually to all those things. And so, yeah, the language you use then is you say to the court, this person is a mere busybody, is the idea that we ought not to give standing to someone who's a mere busybody. But you want to think, well, what's the problem, again, with giving standing to, you know, somebody who's only kind of interested but took the time to even file a judicial review, so why let it be heard? Well, that decision is binding, right? So if he does a bad job of bringing it forward, the issue of whether Stephen Harper was under a legal obligation to appoint senators is settled, you know? Uh, unless you can get around the res judicata somehow, or unless you can get around the deference that a court will show to another decision, you know, you're, you're, you're up against it. So there's a real penalty that can be um, suffered by people who actually have that interest, who would put forward a compelling case if somebody who doesn't have that interest tries to go ahead. So again, standing, it, it doesn't admit to an easy, let's just make it broad answer. There has to be a balance to get the right people before the courts who can effectively argue a case, but not to allow people to do it sort of on a whim, do a sort of half you know, half job. Um, 
And, you know, so then you want to think, too, why does this resonate so much in administrative law? And it's because, well, look, if someone's trying to do something on the cheap, you know, are they going to prefer judicial review or an action? Strongly going to prefer judicial review, right? You know, the action's got the years of document disclosure, et cetera, et cetera. So where you may be most likely to run into somebody who's under-resourced, but is trying to nevertheless bring a matter forward um, for a political or a personal reason, is frankly within the judicial review context. So it's, it's something that you, you probably will run into if you work for the government or if you stay in admin law for any serious length of time. That, of course, raises a separate problem about access to justice, which is, you know, the courts have said for a, if you want to adjudicate a big charter issue, we want a full factual matrix against which to assess that, and that's not often available within the judicial review process, so they'll say, no, you can't do this in a JR, you have to go to a trial. You know, that's what we ran in the Site C case. And, um, and so, you know, there's a huge accessibility problem there. So not allowing things to go in JR can undermine accessibility, but allowing things to go in a JR where they're under-resourced um, under and there's some bad job done, well, that can cause bigger problems for everybody. So again, it's, there's no easy answers. These are, just, these are issues to be aware of, not ideas that have a, a solution necessarily. Um, any questions on the standing stuff? I have a question yeah. That's such a good question. And the case you want to think about for that is called Bain and Moulton Contracting, Supreme Court of Canada case. Um, and the issue you run into there is Section 35 rights are held by the community, exercised by individual members. So an individual member has an interest in their own ability to exercise a right. So if you were to say, um, my ability to hunt is being curtailed by this decision, you likely wouldn't need um, the community's uh, support or the community's authorization or to have the community take the matter forward. However, if your question is broader, the Crown's not discharged the duty to consult to my group, and so therefore this permit they've issued is unlawful. That was the case that happened in Bain and Moulton, and the individuals, the Bain family, said, look, I don't think that our nation has adequately um, you know, advocated against these permits, so we're going to do a roadblock. We're going to do a, um, you know, we're going to take direct action. And if you charge us with any uh, sort of thing in relation to that, we are going to assert our Section 35 rights. And the court said there, you know, the individuals did not have the standing to assert their collectively held right to adequate consultation as individuals, but rather, if that was going to be asserted, it would have to be asserted by the collective. So it's a tricky question as to who has the standing to assert an Aboriginal right or a treaty right. 
um, if it is an individual saying there's this accepted right but my personal ability to exercise it is being limited they probably have the standing to make that case themselves but if they're saying as a collective we hold this right that's not yet been recognized or has been infringed by a you know on a broad scale they likely have to go through and get the entire community now that comes right back to that issue we talked about briefly last week about you know band council versus hereditary leadership and what happens if the hereditary leadership says we weren't adequately consulted but the band council says we were these are very difficult questions and that's a problem that's running up in the Wet'suwet'en pro uh, protests that's kind of exactly the problem in those in those issues in those cases so that's a great question um, and, and a very tricky one very tricky one all right so let's any other questions about standing issues The coolest, one of the funniest things, I, I don't know what it was, it's, just, it's worth, worth repeating, was um, I watched the downtown Eastside sex workers case um, at the BC Court of Appeal level, and it was argued by, you know, the late, great Joe Arve, and he, of course, is confined to a wheelchair, or was for most of his life, and so he kind of rolled over to the podium, he's like, can I sit to address standing? And they're like, yes, you may. He's such a good guy. Um, all right. Anyways, so the book, the book said, okay, you, you got this first barrier of standing, which is complex. And I could frankly go on about it. It's an issue that just pulls in so many different interesting ways. Uh, but you establish standing, and then you know what's next? Well, you, you presumably for most uh, or for many tribunal processes you're going to be looking at some form of hearing. It may be purely written submissions, uh, but it may also be a hearing. So if we're thinking about accessibility, how do you decide, des design the more accessible hearing process? And some say that, well, the requirement to have a hearing at all undermines accessibility. You know, why might that be? Well. If you have to take a day off work, or two days off work, or a week off work to go do a tribunal, who can afford to do that? Not everybody, right? So is written submissions more accessible? What about literacy, though? What if your literacy is, is poor, maybe in English? Maybe you don't, you're not very good at expressing yourself in written English. Well, then is a, is a written submission very accessible? You know, certainly not. It can be a gigantic barrier, and I've seen um, self-represented people on judicial reviews I've been up against, you know, put in some written material that is barely comprehensible. But then they get up in the oral hearing and they, they, they tell a very compelling story. You know, so you, some, for some people, a written process is very accessible and preferable because you don't have to take time off work. For others, it's a huge barrier to getting your, um, your story across and then where where should the hearing take place is it going to be in person if it is in person well where is it going to be where, where workers compensation board hearings uh, many of them take place in in Richmond um, how accessible is that as a physical location? Do you have other places throughout the province? Are you expecting people to travel great distances? 
Are you therefore providing better justice to people in urban centers as opposed to rural areas? And is that defensible? So in-person hearings raise these kind of logistical problems for access. So if you try to counter that by saying, okay, well, we will do, um, we'll do telephone hearings or we'll do uh, video conference hearings. Now, video conference is getting better, but for a long time, again, access to high-speed internet in a rural community was very difficult. And so are, you're going to say that you know, people who can access the, the pure fiber internet are going to be able to be clearly and crisply understood, but people who are on a poor modem are going to you know, have a, a choppy or a complete failure to um, you know, be able to convey their message, that, that, that's tricky. So then if you say, well, some people will be by video, some will be by phone, is there a difference there? You know, is that a different level of uh, procedural right? Not being able to see the decision maker, not having them be able to see you. Now, as you may expect, it gets even more complicated though, because sometimes not being able to see the person is actually more fair than being able to see the person. Um, you can do away with some um, you know, racial prejudice sometimes by not being able to see the person. You can at least ensure that that may, it may be less of a factor. Um, sometimes the very young or the very old face prejudice that you know, can come across through a, uh, a video or in-person hearing that can not be quite as acute on a telephone hearing. And sometimes people feel much more at ease if they, if they just feel like I'm talking on the phone. You know, I know personally in the last year I've done in-person um, video conference and telephone court hearings and it just feels, each one feels extremely different. And the formality of a telephone hearing is way down. You know, you, you find yourself just talking more normally and that can be very comforting for some people. Uh, the, the actual in-person hearing can be very intimidating. Um, Sometimes, though, you, you, you go too informal, and that, that doesn't impress the decision maker. So it's, you know, there's, again, I wish I could say here's the right way to, to do it, but I just wanted to make sure we understand sort of the breadth of the different push, pull, and challenges in designing an accessible hearing. Um, another important, another big one is sort of cultural cues for credibility. Um, aversion to eye contact, for example, is sometimes seen as very undermining your credibility. And yet in some cultures, it's just a, it's a polite thing to not make eye contact. So there, it's, these are very tricky questions. Um, so designing how you're gonna have your hearing, you know, it's, it's fraught with accessibility issues that you want to think through. There's gonna be, a dynamic, there's going to be, you know, you're going to sacrifice some elements in order to preserve other elements. There's no perfect answer, but you do want to be intentional, at least, when designing those. And certainly, this is the kind of thing where I think um, empirical research would be good. Like, for a, for a tribunal that does hearings both by video and by telephone, could you see a measurable difference in the success rate of applicants via the two different uh, methods. I don't think anyone's ever done that, but that, or at least not in Canada. But I think that'd be very interesting. 
you know, put in person too if you can. All right, so that was sort of the little blurb I wanted to do about the design of the hearing process. Are there any questions on that? All right, so let's um, talk a little bit more about sort of the second big chunk that the book talks about, about information and knowledge and accessibility. And what they're getting at here is, what can a tribunal do to help people understand both the substantive considerations that are gonna guide their you know, the decision-making in their case, and what are the procedural designs and you know, way to share those procedural designs so people can understand what to expect, what rights they may have, um, you know, what procedural mechanism they might want to invoke in any particular case. Um, the, court, the, the book talks about guidelines as being one tool in the administrative tribunal's box to be used in order to um, you know, help people understand the process and the substance. And guidelines absolutely can be very helpful, especially to help someone through a complex process and to understand the sorts of considerations that may weigh on a decision maker's uh, decision making process. But what's the problem with guidelines? Well, we talked about it a while back, and it may sort of may trigger something in the back of your mind that guidelines, unlike statutes, unlike regulations, don't bind the tribunal. And they're free to depart from guidelines. And you may remember also that if you treat your guidelines as binding, as constraining your discretion. Do you remember what that, the problem that can arise there is called? You can fetter it. Fetter it, exactly. You can unlawfully fetter your discretion if you were to say, well, I know that statutorily I'm entitled to give this range of remedies, but I'm gonna set a guideline that says these are the three remedies that are available. Well, you can't do that. You can't refuse to take the power that's been given to you and say, I'm not gonna, you know, exercise it to its full extent, even if that were appropriate in a particular case. So guidelines um, cannot bind the tribunal unless there were to be something in the regulation which explicitly says they can pass guidelines by themselves, but I've never seen that. I think the book talks about it, so it must exist somewhere. I've never seen it. Um, so that, that's one issue with these guidelines. Then another issue with these guidelines um, is, you remember, if you depart from them, this can, well, legally permissible in the sense that you have, you know, you're not allowed to fetter your discretion with the guideline. At the same time, you may run into a legitimate expectations problem, right? Where if you let someone believe a particular process is gonna be followed or even a particular substantive um, approach is going to be considered, or is going to be uh, applied. To depart from that may violate procedural fairness, right? And the remedy there is to have the matter proceed again, um, you know, with perhaps that procedural expectation being followed or a understanding of the reasons why the tribunal is thinking of departing from its substantive guidelines and the chance to, to meet that case. So if you're a tribunal and you issue guidelines 
uh, on the one hand, it can help simplify matters. On the other hand, you can run into this difficulty of either fettering your discretion or if you depart from your sort of guidelines, running into a legitimate expectations argument on judicial review. So you kind of have the tribunal on the spot where it's like, I've got this tool that I can use to make my tribunal more accessible. But if I use it, I open myself up to more difficulty on judicial review with fettering and with legitimate expectations. So how do you strike that balance? You know, again, tricky. Um, so all I want to say about guidelines, I just want to have in the back of your mind that, you know, issuing guidelines isn't just a no-brainer and how far you go isn't just a no-brainer. It's a difficult issue for a tribunal. And, and frankly, I think they shouldn't worry that much about being set aside on judicial review as long as they're trying their best to act fairly and accessibly. But tribunals really do not like to be set aside on judicial review. I mean, it's kind of natural. Um, another thing the book talks about is simplification. And I think this gets into its guidelines, its any instruction material it sets out, its decisions. You know, the more you can simplify the substance, simplify the explanation of what's happened, the more that's going to increase accessibility. Plain language, um, you know, writing in a clear, explicable way. This is, you know, if you ever go to a tribunal training session, these just are topics that are going to get hammered uh, to the tribunal members. But it is incredibly difficult. And it's incredibly difficult too. I think it's going to be more difficult in a post-Babylon world where the judges are going to be giving very careful attention to those reasons, looking for logical consistency, you know, looking, for, um, the, the, looking more intently at the reasoning process. And you think that that would lead the tribunal members to start to write a little bit more for a judicial audience as opposed to a lay audience. Where, you know, if you're concerned about judicial review, you've read Babylon, you know they want, they're gonna have a reasons first approach and they're gonna be looking at your reasons to see if they meet these standards of clarity, intelligibility, justification, transparency. Um, you know, that might be who you write for and that might not be the right person to write for in the sense that you want to make your tribunal more accessible. Um, if all of a sudden your decision is 15 pages long instead of three pages long, there's a good chance they're not gonna read it. There's a good chance the litigant's not gonna read it. And I mean, I frankly don't always read every decision that I litigate. If they're long and I won, or whatever, I'm not appealing. <laughs> I, honestly, I don't read them. <laughs> so it's, I, I, if you, the simplification um, is, a, is a laudable goal, but can run into a tension with the review process that's advocated by Vavilov. Vavilov, to be clear, encourages simple language and transparency. Um, we've talked about how they do that while using absolutely $10 words you know, in, the, in the judgment itself. Uh, but nevertheless, you still, you know, if the judge feels like this is too thin, I don't, I can't really understand 
uh, the reasoning, it's, this is overly simplified, I don't get how you grapple with this big problem, you convert it to a difficulty on judicial review. Um, and, and just plain language writing is really hard. It's really easy to write convoluted, throw it all on there, and being able to write clearly in plain language is, you can work at it, but a lot of it's talent too. If you're just a better writer, you're a better writer. You know, it's, a lot of people try to write like Hemingway, but not many people do. So, you know, you try your best. Um, so, simplification, difficult, can run into tension with bad law review. The next thing I want to touch on before we take our break, and I do, I'm cognizant of the time, um, the language, the language that the hearing is going to proceed in, and your ability to um, present in your language of choice is can be a big barrier to accessibility. And you may have a right to uh, state-funded interpreter services, but you probably won't. It's, it's the exception that a tribunal does provide interpreter services. Usually you have a right to use an interpreter. Sometimes though you have an obligation to use an interpreter from a particular list, a particularly qualified interpreter, you know, a court interpreter. Sometimes you're allowed to just use a friend. Sometimes you have to use a sort of licensed interpreter. If you have to do the latter, it's a, it's a big financial burden. The cases where you're getting closer to criminal, you're dealing with extradition, these are the types of things where you may be able to have a state-funded interpreter. But even very important matters, you know, you're, you're very unlikely to have a right to be provided an interpreter. Uh, it's getting a little better. The residential tenancy branch recently has started providing interpreters in some languages. Um, but it's a resource allocation question, which we'll get to in a second as to whether that's where they spend their, their resources. And it's, it's, the, it's sort of a procedural choice, not, a, um, not often a right. So one thing I have found is, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I could see the incentive to make it intentional. Even some tribunals that will provide interpreters don't necessarily make that all that clear on their website. Um, the residents of Tennessee branch recently started making interpreters available, but didn't put anything on the website saying that we'll give you a free interpreter. So it's not a bad idea if you have a client who needs interpretation services to call the tribunal, say, hey, you know, I, I, this, my client doesn't speak um, English well, we need an interpreter. You also may need extra hearing time. It kind of doubles how long the hearing is gonna take if you have an interpreter, especially if they are going to interpret your submissions and not just the evidence. Um, and as a general rule, I do find that calling tribunals, talking to the people there, seeing what's available is, is good practice. You wanna keep that in the back of your mind. Let's, let's take our break now uh, before we get into the prior decisions. Um, 
we'll take a take take ten, but I'll, I'll try to get started right at eleven forty because I do have a fair amount to get through still. All right, let's uh, let's get back to it. Um, the next thing I want to talk about in terms of accessibility, and this is this is another tricky one, surprisingly, is prior decisions. Um, what does a tribunal do with its prior decisions? And you'll remember that one of the general principles of admin law is that tribunals are not generally bound by their own prior decisions. They're free to depart from them. Uh, nevertheless, it certainly is helpful to people to be able to find prior decisions, to understand how similar cases were decided. And in the post-Vavilov world, of course, there is this idea in Vavilov that if you have sort of a persistent dissonance where the tribunal's going two different ways on the same issue, it can be unreasonable to not try to resolve that dissonance when it's raised before you. So you need to be aware of what's, what's out there. And the degree to which that's easy just varies greatly tribunal to tribunal. Some tribunals have their decisions available and searchable on Canly. Do you, you get like Quick Law or something, don't you? Yeah. And do you get Westlaw too? Yeah. Uh, do you use Canly sometimes? Yeah. When I was at law school, Canly was so clearly inferior. It was like kind of a real throwaway. Like it was, it, it was very limited. BC was okay. Other provinces had like no coverage on Canly. Now, I don't even use a subscription service. You know, I, I just use Canly all the time um, because if something's so obscure it's not on Canly for a case, it's probably not all that important authority anymore anyways. Um, but with Canly, some tribunals have their entire, you know, all their decisions available and searchable. The Law Society of British Columbia decisions are on there, for example. It's great. It's really it's kind of annoying when you're looking for cases and there's you see a hundred results and seventy of them are tribunals, which are not very, you know, not very important precedents uh, in court. But it's certainly, if you're within that tribunal, it's it's fantastic. But a lot of other tribunals don't have their decisions up on Canly. Some of them have their decisions up on a proprietary service, Westlaw or Quicklaw. So there's some tribunals that you can search their decisions on Westlaw. Quick law, you can't search on Canly. Um, you know, it's a little bit um, disappointing in a sense because the tribunals are are making their what should be publicly available um, precedents effectively putting them behind a paywall for a for-profit company's benefit, which you know has it raises its its own access problems. But you know, when you're concerned with helping your client find the decisions. You want to have a look. Is it on Canley? Is it on Westlaw? Is it on Quicklaw? If they are not on any of those, um, and uh, kind of either way, you need to go to their website to have a look to see if they have a decisions database. Because sometimes they won't have uh, complete coverage on Canley or Westlaw or Quicklaw. So you kind of want to double check that. In trouble with their online. Uh, decision databases, though, is they're almost inevitably extremely clunky to search. So, 
and to, to navigate and scroll through. You know, you're not going to get a nice little scroll pane where you can go through keywords from decision to decision to decision. It's going to be really a lot of grunt work of opening up something, control Fing, reading through decision. So it can take a very, very long time. So of course, having the IT staff to put decisions up online is another resource decision as to whether or not you're going to spend your time doing that. Some tribunals strike a middle ground and they put up, in essence, notable decisions up on Canly, or sorry, up on their website and sort of suggest these are the decisions that we think are important and you ought to look at as potential precedents when you're arguing a case. But again, from a tribunal uh, standpoint, that decision can cause problems. This is getting into a pretty in the weeds question that we looked at briefly earlier, but you may remember when we talked about institutional bias, that these sort of leading decisions can cause the same sorts of problems as fettering, where if you say, look, we are deciding this once and for all in this context. There was an immigration case that we talked about where they had you know, been found to have um, sort of put forward facts and made a decision that was not favorable to a class of immigrants and that was found to have caused institutional bias to permeate throughout the, the tribunal. So deciding and, uh, and you know, putting forward leading decisions in a way can be helpful because instead of having thousands of decisions to sort through, you know, you have these 50 leading decisions, it's more manageable, but it can run, it can cause the tribunal to run into its own problems. And so the, the rule about institutional bias that made some sense in practical the idea of these tribunals are intended to have this broad discretion, you know, can resonate in now tribunals don't want to put up leading decisions for fear that it's going to raise an institutional bias concern. Now always push and pull, give and take in all these admin law decisions. So finding the, the case law, searching the case law, can be extremely hard, even for legally trained individuals such as yourselves. For your average person, it's really hard. Really, really hard. And again, a barrier to accessibility and a potential um, you know, artificial delineator between people who can afford legal representation and those who can't as to you know, who's going to get better justice. Sometimes tribunals try to um, push back against this by having their members you know, not uh, concern themselves much with, with authority or to know the sort of the leading cases within their tribunal themselves, bring them forward, you know, help people sort of understand the principles, take a more active role than you would see from a judge who usually would just sit back and say, you tell me your cases, you tell me your cases, I'll decide on that basis. You know, to take a more active role of saying, well, we have this case which says this and that principle seems to apply here, what do you say to that? Like that, that sort of a role you might see more often in a tribunal. So how to structure your tribunal, where to put your decisions, raise accessibility concerns, raise resource expenditure uh, trade-offs. And as a lawyer, you know, you want to have a look. Look at the subscription services, look at their website, look at Canly, see if you can find the best way to get a sense of their, their tribunals. Um, past decisions, but knowing that they're not going to be binding. However, if you can find a judicial review decision, 
you know, that, that will be binding on the tribunal. For the reason, and we talked about that, right, the mechanism basically through which judicial review decisions are binding on tribunals. Maybe I'll just touch on that one more time quickly because it's a really confusing, but I think can be made kind of clear idea. So the idea is that if you bring a judicial review and you get a particular outcome, you know, saying that this decision was unreasonable, um, the reason that's binding on the tribunal is in a subsequent judicial review, that would be binding on the court. So they're gonna give the same result in a judicial review the next time that decision comes before them. Uh, importantly though, you need to think, what was the court's decision? And if it's you know, this interpretation of this law, this part of your statute, is unreasonable, that's the kind of thing you can, you know, you can, you can rely upon. What if the decision is, well, this interpretation is reasonable? Does that mean it's the only reasonable interpretation? You know, no. So if you go to court and you, if you look at a, at a precedent, it, it's the court upholding an interpretation as reasonable, that doesn't necessarily mean you can go to the tribunal and say you must follow this reasonable interpretation. The tribunal might say that's one reasonable interpretation, but here's another one that's different. So maybe I'm getting a bit of field, but that's these these issues do arise. Um, another thing the book talks about, which I think is overlooked and so important is to think about the people who staff the tribunal, starting with the decision makers. Um, the array of different sorts of people you may have at a tribunal is much more vast than it is at a court. You may get a legally trained person who's you know, been a lawyer for some number of years and is coming from a very similar perspective to a judge. You may get somebody whose background is more in the industry that the tribunal uh, you know, is in charge of. You may get somebody who just is sort of a general public administration background. Some people work their way up in the tribunal from being effectively support to being a decision maker. Um, there are some people at the residential tenancy branch, for example, who have been there for you know, decades and don't have any legal training, but have adjudicated tens of thousands of residential tenancy disputes and aren't going to be very receptive to your sort of nifty legal argument. There are some people at the residential tenancy branch who are three years out of law school who are making these decisions who may be very receptive to your nifty legal argument. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if one of you doesn't work in a tribunal in the next 10 years or so, or maybe many of you. They're pretty good jobs, um, you know, good, good life balance, and it sort of needs to be an adjudicator. But it's the range of people you're going to see at a tribunal is vast. It may be vast even at the same tribunal. And the nature of the outcome you're going to get really can depend on the decision maker you get. Uh, a few good people at a tribunal can do just absolute wonders for accessibility. A few bad people can do the exact opposite. And because these are government positions, you know, even though tribunal members often have termed employment, we talked about that a long time ago, um, it's very difficult to get rid of a bad decision maker. They're gonna probably stick around for a while. So, um, you know, when you're thinking about how you design a tribunal, you wanna think about who are the people you want to be staffing that tribunal and making the decisions. Of course, let's say you decide I want to have lawyers. 
I want to have legally trained people. What's the dynamic going to run into there? Well, money, right? Like, let's say the residential tenancy branch decision makers start, I think it's about 70000 a year. It's a fine salary um, for lots of different people. But for somebody with a legal um, background, it's, it's not highly competitive. You know, there's other benefits to working there, but it's not a highly competitive salary. So you'll see a lot of people go there, maybe while their family is young, and then go do something else for a little while, after a little while. So retaining your staff is a, you know, is a consideration in determining what type of people you want to have on staff. And the more expertise you have from your decision makers, the more likely they are to have other lucrative opportunities that may draw them away from your tribunal. So again, a tricky, tricky question. Um, legal representation at the tribunal is varies greatly. It's extremely unlikely that you'll have a right to a lawyer paid for by the tribunal. Um, you know, frankly, outside of some extreme immigration context, I don't think that will be the case at all. More often, you have a right to a lawyer so long as you pay for them, i.e. we will allow you to bring a lawyer. There are some tribunals, though, that either as a matter of practice or a matter of rule discourage people from bringing lawyers. They want to adjudicate these things without the intervention of, of advocates. So you, know, you want to have a look at the statute to see if it talks about a right to a lawyer or potentially if the statute or the rules prohibit a lawyer. Um, the book talks interestingly about the potential that incompetent counsel could be a basis to set aside an administrative decision. That's you know, an interesting thing to keep in the back of your mind too. That's sort of a tangential thing, but it's if somebody comes to you and says, I went to this tribunal and I had a lawyer, but look what happened, and you look at it and you think, oh my god, that's atrocious. You know, maybe you'll remember that that might be a standalone ground of judicial review. Um, don't want to get too far into that. I want to keep moving. Um, the book also talks about you know fees and costs. These are pretty obvious access to justice issues, and tribunal fees vary from like a twenty-five bucks to I think the book said the Competition Bureau was like. Was it 50,000 or half a million dollars to file something? It was a gigantic number. Uh, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act is relatively cheap to file, but you have to pay the government's expenses in conducting the environmental assessment, including you know, the, the scientists, the reviewers they have to hire. So your bill can be gigantic from an environmental assessment. Um, so, Fees are, without surprisingly, complicated. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, a fee that actually keeps somebody from accessing the tribunal, clearly a barrier to access. However, if you don't have fees that would be reasonably borne by most people who need your tribunal, and perhaps you could have a process to have fee relief that is easy and accessible for those who really can't afford it, well, you might be able to generate the resources that would allow you to retain 
you know, uh, more senior adjudicators, to hire more adjudicators, to offer translation services, to make your um, decisions publicly available. So if fees aren't just sort of a little arbitrary barrier, they can also be a tool if properly used to increase access to justice. So setting a fee that is sort of appropriate so the right people are paying the right amount to use this tribunal ultimately can resonate to making the tribunal more effective and accessible. With the risk being if you set it too high, you may just discourage people from, from coming to that tribunal at all, or you may restrict access to those who are financially better off. Um, costs awards, I talked about very briefly, tribunals very rarely make cost awards. Sometimes they do. And again, there's arguments a bit on both sides for accessibility, because not being able to get the costs award you know, does potentially discourage somebody from uh, taking a run at something if they feel their rights have clearly been violated. They say, look, you know, I can't, I can't afford to do this. Even if I win, I'll still be in the hole for all this money that it takes me to prove my rights. It's not worth it. Uh, maybe there's more of a principle at stake and less of an actual pecuniary amount that would be gained through success at the tribunal. And so you just say, well, I'm not even going to try. Now, in that situation, a cost award might increase your access to the tribunal. And also, cost awards can have the effect of discouraging these abusive, vexatious litigants. Although, don't get too excited about that, because making a cost award and actually getting someone to pay one are very different things, and vexatious litigants often just don't pay their cost awards and keep on trying different avenues. So, you know, I just want to be clear that, again, when you're trying to design accessibility, um, just, you know, keeping the fees low and not, not awarding costs may intuitively sound like the best approach, but there's drawbacks on that side as well. You have to think big picture to how to tailor your, your tribunal. Um, you know, again, I imagine fees would be an area you could probably look empirically. Does it make a difference? if the residential tenancy branch is 100 bucks here and 500 bucks to file in Ontario? Does that make a difference? These sort of questions should be asked and really haven't been. Um, so the final thing I want to touch on before just moving to just kind of how does this whole process work in practice and um, procedurally is budget. And I've been harping on it over and over again throughout this, so I don't need to go in this in any depth, but there's trade-offs is the, the takeaway on budget. Um, you only have so many resources and you have to decide what is going to best further accessibility for this tribunal. Is it gonna be more decision makers? Is it gonna be more experienced decision makers who can do things more quickly and more fairly? Is it gonna be translation services? Is it gonna be a better decision database? These are, every one of these has a trade-off. Every dollar you spend on paying your legally trained tribunal members a competitive salary is a dollar you don't spend to your IT guy to make the thing more publicly available, to maybe increase your video conferencing technologies. Um, so these, the budget for these tribunals, I, every single tribunal complains about its budget and probably most fairly complain about their budgets. So, you know, is the fees the answer to this budget question? Well, there's drawbacks there too. 
So you know you want to think that um, all of these accessibility concerns somewhat resonated money at the end of the day. Do you have the money? Do you have the resources to tackle these accessibility problems? So that is sort of a run through of the issues that are touched on in the book. And the thinking, I hope you to sort of see all, how all these various issues uh, interrelate, become complex and convoluted, and there's sort of pros and cons on both sides in designing a tribunal. Are there any, um, any questions or any of that? All right, what I wanna do now with the last, we've got about 20 minutes, is I wanna just talk about sort of procedurally, like what does it look like to actually bring a judicial review application on behalf of somebody. And unfortunately, um, sort of for your ease of understanding, it's quite different whether you're going to federal court or BC Supreme Court. Fortunately though, in a sense, seeing the differences allows us to understand and think critically about the choices that have gone into that process and how those may have pros or cons. So client comes into your office, they say, you know, I want to bring a judicial review, or frankly, more likely they say, I'm ticked off about this admin decision, what can I do about it? Well, then, you know, the first thing you do, of course, is you figure out where might a judicial review lie? Is this federal legislation, in which case you have to go to federal court, or is this provincial legislation, in which case you go to BC Supreme Court? Um, then you look through the statute um, you know, many times, but one of the first things you're looking for is, am I looking at a statutory right of appeal, or will this be a judicial review application? If it is a statutory right of appeal, you, know, you, you look for guidance in the statute as to how to sort of formulate that originating document, saying, here's my notice of appeal. Sometimes you have to kind of fudge it. Like, there's not really any guidance on how to do a notice of appeal from the Law Society to the BC Court of Appeals, so I just made it up, and they're like, oh, looks good enough, and stamp it. But um, you, know, you need to see if there's any guidance on how to do that. Otherwise, the original document you're looking at in BC Supreme Court is a petition, petition for judicial review. And in the federal court is a notice of application for a judicial review. Um, you familiar with petitions, like the idea of petitions as opposed to actions? If you've done civ procedure, that probably comes up. So an action is, you know, plaintiff versus defendant, where you're seeking to sue somebody or obtain some remedy of that sort. And a petition is a legal process that doesn't necessarily even have to have a respondent. In the bankruptcy context, it just can be like re-estate of Jones. But in the, in the um, administrative context, ordinarily the petition has you as the petitioner, and the respondent is the admin tribunal. So you look through the admin tribunal statute and you see what's the you know, legal name of the tribunal. And we put that down as a respondent. So you file this in federal court within 30 days. It's really quick. 
in BC Supreme Court, there is no set deadline to start an application for judicial review. However, the Judicial Review Procedure Act says that you cannot bring it if such time has passed that it will cause substantial hardship. Sometimes, though, you see judicial review applications going ahead that they've waited like 10, 15 years to bring. Uh, there's wide discretion to allow people to, um, to, to bring these things later in BC Supreme Court. So you craft your petition, and in BC Supreme Court, it's expected to be detailed, almost like an argument. Set up, here are the facts, here is the basis upon which I say this needs to be set aside. In a federal court, it's limited. You basically just need to, in essence, say, I, you know, here's the decision at issue, and I want to overturn it on uh, procedural and substantive grounds. It really is almost as simple as that. You can, you can get those things out in a few minutes. You can do longer ones, but the reality is the judge never really looks at the application for judicial review. They look at your written argument and affidavit, so it doesn't actually really matter that much how detailed your application is, so long as you ask for the relief. You know, you think of the proper relief you want. Decision set aside, whatever it is. Um, so you prepare your your originating document, your petition, or your notice of application for review. And then the next thing you have to think about is the evidence you're gonna to use to support that. And the evidence goes in by way of affidavit in both contexts. You're not gonna have live witnesses in either federal court or BC Supreme Court. But you wanna remember, like, what is judicial review about? Well, it's not about deciding the issue again that was before the tribunal, we, we know that. It's rather about reviewing the decision that was made. So what's relevant in terms of evidence? Well, generally, it's just what was before the tribunal. Usually, you don't need to go beyond the record in order to argue that this was an unreasonable decision. If there's procedural fairness issues, and especially something like bias, where you have some evidence of bias that was discovered after the fact, or um, you know, that may not be apparent on the record, that's when you would expand upon your, uh, in your affidavit with that sort of evidence. But generally, you wanna think the evidence is just gonna be what was before the tribunal. What is then, um, sort of come to mind, so how would I get that? You know, your client shows up, they self-represented, maybe their file's an absolute mess. They don't have all the submissions and, and we don't know what behind the scenes a decision maker might have had before them. And so both federal court and the BC Supreme Court have mechanisms that allow the court to order the tribunal to file its record into evidence. In the BC Supreme Court, it's rule uh, section 17 of the Judicial Review Procedure Act that says the court may order the tribunal to file the record. Uh, in practice, you don't have to get a court order hardly ever. You just ask the tribunal to prepare and file the record and they'll do so. And then you use that as the basis to do your arguments. 
in the federal court, within your notice of application, your originating document, you make what's called a Rule 317 request, which is where you request all the material that's before the decision maker, and the tribunal is obliged to file that also with the court. So generally, your affidavit is not that important. What matters is getting the tribunal record before the court. Many people put improper affidavits that try to expand on the record, talk about things that happened after the decision, and you know those are just going to be given little to no weight. So you do an affidavit. The other uh, sort of there's a question that I've gotten to is who's on the other side of the judicial review, and that varies. Sometimes it's going to be the other party in the tribunal below. If it was a residential tenancy dispute, you've got the landlord, you've got the tenant on the other side, tenant on the other side. So they're going to be, um, you know, the, the two names on the judicial review application. Sometimes, though, there isn't somebody litigating on the other side in a workers' compensation context. Um, usually, the you know employee says I was hurt, and the employer doesn't say that person wasn't hurt. They don't really care. They're insured. They just say you know workers' comp figure it out. And so the other side is the tribunal. The tribunal will have counsel appear at the judicial review hearing, but they just make submissions about like the standard of review. They don't advocate to defend their decision. In federal court, the other side is the Attorney General of Canada, not the tribunal. It's the the. the Department of Justice appears in defense. And ironic, I don't know if it's ironic, but it's, it's notable as a big difference that they do appear and advocate for the decision. It's an adversarial arrangement in federal court. So if you're in BC Supreme Court, it's likely going to be you, the judge, and the tribunal. And the tribunal is just saying, here's a standard of review, here's how our processes work. You know, here's how you need to understand our full context in order to not do something that's going to mess up our ability to, you know, run our tribunal going forward. In federal court, it's going to be you and a lawyer from DOJ who's going to be advocating against your position. Rather different. Um, so, the next thing to think about is cross examination. You do a petition, you do an affidavit, are you gonna be cross-examined on that affidavit? The answer is almost always no. In BC Supreme Court, you have to ask the court for leave to cross-examine, you have to bring a motion, and they exceptionally rarely grant that motion. So you are really rarely gonna be cross-examined on an affidavit in judicial review. And that's largely because the court says, look, what matters is the record. I have the record. I don't really care that much about this affidavit. Um, let's, let's get to the, to the point. In federal court, you have a right to cross-examination on the affidavit, but you do it before a court reporter outside of court. It's like an examination for discovery type arrangement. Show up, other side's there, the lawyer's there. You know, you do a cross-examination, you get a transcript, and you argue about it at the judicial review stage. But in either context, it's very rare to do a cross-examination. Um, I've been involved in 
you know, like many judicial reviews, and I think I'm involved in three cross-examinations uh, in that context. So if you get through that, you've got your originating document, your petition, you know if there's gonna be cross-examination or not, and if it's happening in federal court, it's already happened. If it's in BC Supreme Court, it'll happen at the hearing itself. Then the next thing is a written argument. In federal court, you have to do one. You have to exchange written arguments. In BC Supreme Court, it's optional. And the parties get to set their own timelines for exchanging written arguments. That sounds nice, but it, in practice, is kind of a nightmare. Because there's no penalty for missing sort of the timeline you agree with each other, apart from adjourning the judicial review to another date, saying, well, I didn't get this argument in time. So it causes some mischief if you, if it's really an important thing that needs to go fast, the other side can almost just sit and wait, give you a written argument at the last moment and face almost no consequence for doing so. Um, so you know, I'm in favor of timelines, but BC Supreme Court hasn't implemented them and you don't even have to do a written argument. Then you go to your judicial review hearing, uh, as they say in federal courts, you're gonna get a judge who's read the arguments, who's read the petition, who's read the, uh, or the affidavit material. In BC Supreme Court, you're not. You're gonna get a judge who's just got it that morning and kind of comes in. So you go to the hearing, and at the hearing, you know, you need to be sure to, um, to not assume administrative law knowledge. And this kind of ties up the entire substance of the course in a sense, because you know, I would say the best advice I could give you in terms of how to tackle an oral hearing for an administrative law, uh, you know, law problem, is you need to explain to the judge not just what the principles are, but you need to explain why the principles exist. You need to be able to explain why deference is so important, why procedural fairness is variable. You need to think that this judge probably isn't even gonna really understand the three circles. They're not gonna really get that they're the judiciary checking the executive. A lot of them just sort of think, well, there's rules for judicial reviews, I know what they are. They don't think much more deeply than that. And I, I don't think I'm being rude, I just think it's the reality. If you don't practice in administrative law, and the training isn't all that great, and frankly, a lot of the admin law doctrine has only really come together in a sensible way in the last few years, it's understandable. But you need to, you know, go in not assuming this is an area the judge is comfortable and familiar with, ready to explain things, and ready to explain things on a principled level. And if you can do that, then you should be able to, you know, get your case across effectively. But if you assume too much knowledge, you're gonna, you know, almost inevitably say, wait a second, they kind of got this basic thing wrong. And then you're in a, you're in a very difficult spot. Um, you know, you do your, your, your argument um, in federal court, you're definitely gonna get written reasons in BC Supreme Court. You might get oral reasons, you might get written reasons. You look at those reasons. If you're happy, you're happy. If you're unhappy, you consider an appeal. And remember, an appeal is basically a chance to do it all over again. 
It's you're stepping back into the same shoes as the BC Supreme Court judge. Now, when I say all that right now, it sounds like a lot, but the fact that I could explain the entire process while elaborating on every step in like 20 minutes, is very different from an action, very different from a civil action, where you have to talk about that for an entire semester, basically, to talk about all the processes and procedures that might be, might be available. It is fundamentally a simplified process that if done right, can lead to quick justice, quick determinations, quick checks on the administrative process. Um, but if, you know, if done wrong or done for abusive reasons, it can be a huge drain on everyone's time and, and effort and it can lead to the exact opposite result. So I know that's extremely high level and I don't expect you to internalize that you know, entirely at all and there was no readings on it and I certainly don't anticipate on the exam um, you know, it being a process question at all. Uh, but I do think it's important to give you that sort of context so you understand what it would look like you know, as you go into one of these hearings. Are there any questions about that process? All right, well that sounds good. Well then let's leave it there and I'm gonna go finish up your exam. So if you see me in the library, you know, no peeking. <laughs> and um, and we'll, uh, we'll pick up again on Wednesday to start our review.